From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. Over the last 40 years, breast cancer treatment has greatly improved due to lessons learned through clinical trials. A clinical trial offers you the chance to try a new treatment and possibly benefit from it. Many new treatments for metastatic breast cancer are under study, and most are drug therapies. Learning that a new drug is even better than a standard treatment regimen can also help others. To help us separate the myths from the facts, let me introduce Dr. Tatiana Prowell. Dr. Prowell, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. You know, drug trials uh, are, are kind of a mystery, I think, to a lot of people. And I'm really kind of interested to hear more of your thoughts about it. But before we get into that, can you just give us a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. So my name is Tatiana Prowl. I'm originally uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, have been in Maryland now for about 25 years. I trained at Johns Hopkins all the way from medical school through the end of my residency and fellowship. And I now am an associate professor at Johns Hopkins in the medical oncology department in the breast cancer program and scientific liaison for breast cancer at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, let's dig into it. Uh, help, help me understand, can you define clinical trials and what that means? Sure. So when we say clinical trial, we mean a research study where uh, medicine or other intervention is being tested in patients who have a certain condition um, to see if that medicine will be helpful in their treatment. And there are a variety of types of clinical trials. So some clinical trials, uh, everyone enrolled in the clinical trial gets the same treatment. Other clinical trials might compare an existing treatment to something new. Uh, but in all cases, what we're trying to learn is whether or not in the long run, there's a better way to treat patients with a certain condition than the way we do it currently. Okay. And so there's a lot of maybe lack of understanding or myths or, or misunderstandings about clinical trials. Can you just walk me through what are the biggest myths versus the most important facts and, and what should we really know about clinical trials? Yeah. So I hear lots of myths about clinical trials. I think that a common one that I hear, I hear this from my family members, for example, some of my extended family, they'll say, I don't want to be a guinea pig by going in a clinical trial. They, they feel right. uncomfortable with the idea that something new is being tried in them. That myth may come from phase one clinical trials. So phase one clinical trials are usually clinical trials where a drug is being used in humans for the very first time. So it's been tested in animals. We know what the side effect profile is in animals. Um, and we have uh, an idea of the right dose that would be safe to start if we're going to deliver that drug to people. And the purpose of those trials is to give successive groups of patients higher doses as they go along in the trial to the highest dose that patients are able to safely tolerate. And I think that when we think of clinical trials, sometimes people are envisioning that that sort of clinical trial is, is what we always mean when we say clinical trials, which is a drug where there's no information about the, its use in humans, no right. evidence of whether it will be safe in humans, no evidence of whether it will be helpful for their cancer. And there are definitely times, and maybe we can get to this later in the interview, there are definitely times that phase one trials are appropriate for patients to enroll in. Right. But the far more common scenario is actually not that. The much more common scenario is a drug where we already have some data in humans and maybe we're using it in a different way 
either at a different dose or in a different combination or in a different patient population. And we're trying to figure out, ultimately, can we produce better outcomes for patients than we're currently capable of producing? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of safeguards in place, put in place by the investigators who design the clinical trials and conduct them, but also regulators who oversee the development of all drugs that are being um, considered for ultimate FDA approval and institutional review boards. There are a lot of safeguards in place. And in fact, I think that if a patient is eligible for a clinical trial, meaning it was designed specifically for people like themselves, that's why the eligibility criteria allow them to be in it. If they're eligible for a clinical trial, that's actually the best place to get your treatment. Mm. I think the other myth that I commonly hear is that clinical trials are really for people who are out of options. Right. Um, and again, this sort of gets at maybe these phase one or first in human kind of clinical trials where that idea may come from. But the truth is that if you're eligible for a clinical trial at the time of diagnosis, for example, maybe a clinical trial is a randomized trial that is being used, um, the company will hope to ultimately support FDA approval, that trial might compare our existing best treatment by itself versus our existing best treatment to which a new drug has been added. Okay. And so in that case, um, the person will be receiving the standard therapy no matter what, but they may also be getting an additional drug. Now, it may turn out that the additional drug is better, that adding the additional drug means better outcomes for those patients, but it also may mean that the additional drug just adds side effects and doesn't actually improve outcomes, and that is the purpose of the clinical trial being done. Right. But we shouldn't give the impression that clinical trials are only for people who are late in the course of their disease, who've had a lot of prior treatments, and, and the doctor is sort of out of ideas in terms of standard therapy. That, that is definitely a myth. There are others, but those are the most common. And let, let's just talk about some of the benefits for clinical trials for metastatic breast cancer patients. Uh, so what are, what are those benefits that they should be thinking about as they're considering participating in a clinical trial? Yeah. So thanks for asking about metastatic breast cancer patients in particular. Um, Clinical trials, that's another myth maybe, is that they're only for patients with metastatic cancer. And I realized Mm -hmm. it as soon as you said it. In fact, they can be be for patients, they commonly are for patients who have earlier stages of breast cancer, for example, that's been resected with surgery. And we're looking at whether or not we can prevent a late recurrence. But I do think that there has been a lot of emphasis on the early breast cancer experience or prevention or risk reduction of breast cancer and maybe not as much focus as there should be in popular press on the experience of patients with metastatic disease. So thank you for asking about them in particular. I think if we're talking about the benefits to a patient with metastatic breast cancer of going in a clinical trial, there are really two things. Uh, One is, is there a benefit to the patient herself or himself in terms of how long they'll live with their breast cancer or how long they'll be able to stay on a given treatment before they have to switch and go on to another treatment because the cancer has gotten worse. There's also right. an altruistic part of it though. And I think that you know, that really is a point that should not be lost. Everything we know about how to treat breast cancer comes from clinical trials. Mm. And it comes from patients who went in clinical trials before us. And so we owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. And Having a diagnosis of cancer is so hard, and having a diagnosis of metastatic cancer in particular is so hard. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard from many patients is that participating in a clinical trial brings meaning 
to their mm. experience as a patient. And that matters a lot. Right. No one wants to be in this situation. And I don't believe that um, everything happens for a reason in the, in the trite sense that it's usually offered that, you know, some unequivocal good will come out of this. I don't think that that's true. I think a lot of people suffer with metastatic cancer and that's just a fact. Right. I do think that being in a clinical trial allows a patient to feel that she or he is giving back and it brings meaning to that experience. Right. Wow. I really love that perspective. That's, that's kind of a beautiful thing, even though it's a very tough thing. Uh, okay. So in considering uh, clinical trials, what questions should someone ask a research team before joining? Being in a clinical trial is a tremendous commitment on the part of a patient. There's a commitment of time, um, which really cannot be um, emphasized enough. You know, patients have additional study procedures, additional visits. There's sometimes cost to the patient, cost in terms of things like the study drug usually are not an issue because those are covered by the clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's cost in terms of missed work. There's cost in terms of needed childcare. So if patients are going to be in a clinical trial, I think that they need to understand what's being asked of them, mm-hmm. not just the the medical risk, uh, if you will, that they're taking by being in it, um, but what is going to be the cost to them uh, in their personal life, so to speak. If one has decided that being in a clinical trial is not an excessive burden on time and, and you know, okay, we're committed to doing this, then how do you choose between them? Mm. And there I think that it's important to know what phase of clinical trial this is. Okay. For example, is this a drug that's being tested in, in humans for the first time? If so, why does a doctor think it might be appropriate for me to be in that clinical trial now at this stage of my breast cancer, for example? Is it because we've exhausted all the standard treatment options and, and this is a reasonable idea to try? Is it because there's uh, some marker in my tumor, for example, on testing the presence of a mutation or another marker that might lead us to believe that even though this drug is very early in development, that there's good biological rationale for why it might be an effective treatment? Right. Patients really want to understand the question that's being asked because sometimes the questions that are asked in clinical trials are incredibly meaningful. So in the case of metastatic breast cancer, um, does this drug help patients live longer? Does this drug reduce the the chances of this cancer growing and spreading or prolong the amount of time until that will occur? Does this drug um, produce outcomes as good as our current drugs, but with fewer side effects? So those are questions I think are very meaningful. Right. I think that in some respects, shopping for a clinical trial is is higher stakes, but not dissimilar to shopping for any other really valuable thing in your life. Mm. Um, you want to do a lot of research. You know, my husband and I talk about this a lot. He's also a physician. He's an HIV physician. And um, both of our fields are scientifically and clinically very complex in 2019. We both feel like if we had to understand our car, for example, and how it worked um, nearly as well as patients have to understand their disease uh, in 2019 to make treatment decisions or to decide to join a clinical trial, we probably would never get our cars fixed. <laughs> right. You know, we put a ton of trust in people and we just say, you tell me that it needs that part. Okay. You know, we yeah. don't go do research on how do you know when the timing belt really has to be replaced? We trust that someone's telling us the right thing to do. Mm. Patients need to be able to trust their doctors and their investigators 
at the same time, I do think that it's really, um, I think it's really critical for patients to get themselves educated as best they can to be able to make sure they're making an informed choice because this is your life that we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's striking that balance can be very difficult for patients, yeah. right? Trying to figure out how much do I research and how much do I trust and, and what's yeah. the right balance in between those two. So yeah, that's Absolutely. a really good point. I appreciate you bringing that up. Breast cancer, breast cancer is interesting like that actually, because that is part of why I love doing breast cancer specifically as a specialty. Um, breast cancer patients are so well-informed. Mm. They come with binders, with tabs, They've looked up articles, right. they've highlighted them, they have a whole page of questions. They are a uniquely organized and well-informed group. And they don't mm. all come from backgrounds where um, you know, they're extensively educated or something like that. Certainly some of them are, but some of them are not. Right. And nonetheless, I'm just constantly impressed by how well-informed people with breast cancer are about their condition by how much they can speak the language, by how much prior um, background work they've done before coming to a visit. It's, it's just incredible. And I really tip my hat to them because I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would be able to do that in another disease. Um, for example, if I were diagnosed without the medical background that I have, right. so it's really a credit to them. Well, the nice thing is there's a lot of great resources out there, you know, including Komen's resources and others where they can get just a lot of really good information, uh, which is, you know, part of why we're doing this podcast too. So, mm -hmm. so that's yeah. great. Well, um, so a few more questions uh, related to cl clinical trials, who can join and how do they enroll? How does all that work? So it's a great question. So uh, in terms of who can join, every clinical trial has something called eligibility criteria. So there are inclusion and exclusion criteria. The inclusion criteria are things that patients who are going to go in a clinical trial must have all of to be able to be in. And the exclusion criteria are things that if they have even one of, then they cannot join. And so examples of those things might be for inclusion criteria that you have to have um, metastatic breast cancer, and that it has to have um, positive estrogen and progesterone receptors, and it cannot have HER2 uh, expression in the tumor, for example. Um, and so if you have a different type of breast cancer, or if you have another type of cancer entirely, like colon cancer, you wouldn't be able to go in that clinical trial. So that's about right. helping us define the patient population. Um, and they are chosen to be able to um, enable us at the at the end, when we get our results back to know who do these results apply to. And then the exclusion criteria, they can exist for a variety of reasons, but the most common reason that they exist is to protect patient safety. So for example, right. um, patients who have liver dysfunction of a certain degree might be uh, excluded from a clinical trial because the drug is cleared out of the body through the liver. And if the liver isn't working properly, then the drug could build up in the patient. Um, and make it not safe for them or potentially not safe for them. One of the things that has been really terrific to see, and I was so proud to be a part of this, along with a tremendous group of people, uh, is modernizing eligibility criteria for oncology clinical trials. So um, there's been for many years, I think, because everyone's busy uh, and no one likes to reinvent the wheel, there's been a tendency to cut and paste eligibility criteria from one mm -hmm. protocol to the next. Certainly, sometimes some of those absolutely can be cut and pasted. There is no need to reinvent the wheel. Right. But 
this often leads to excluding patients who don't need to be excluded because history has has moved on. Um, you know, we have, for example, historically excluded patients with HIV from our clinical trials, and that really reflects the fact that uh, for many years, patients with HIV had a limited life expectancy, and we were concerned that enrolling them in our clinical trials, if, for example, the the endpoint was overall survival. Uh, if they died, we couldn't be confident whether that was a consequence of their cancer or a consequence of HIV and AIDS. Right. I think mm -hmm. that as we've made a lot of progress in HIV and in brain metastases and in many other uh, conditions, it doesn't make sense to be excluding these patients from clinical trials anymore. It's anachronistic. And so one of the efforts that... Um, Several FDA staff, including myself, have been involved with, along with uh, the patient advocacy organization Friends of Cancer Research and American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, that published those recommendations in 2017, and they are increasingly being adopted. And so we've seen the National Cancer Institute modify their standard template for clinical trials to be consistent with those recommendations. We've seen a number of companies and cooperative groups and individual investigators embracing these recommendations. And what's exciting is this means we have now clinical trials available for a lot more patients who want to enroll in them. Yeah. In terms of actually finding one, you know, this is something that we need to work on, honestly. Mm. Um, yeah. There are clinical trials that are um, available in the community. Certainly there's a, there's a large, um, a large, number of clinical trials that you can enroll in right from a private practice in the community. That, that's maybe another myth I should have addressed with the first question, which is to say you don't have to be at, a, at an academic medical center to enroll in a clinical trial. Oh, that's great. That being said, for people that live far away from an academic center or who happen to be getting treated at a clinical practice that doesn't participate in clinical trials, and many do not, I think that that is a real limitation that we have not done as well as we could at getting patients into clinical trials by bringing the clinical trials to the patients. Mm. There's an effort that's underway now um, within the FDA, and, and um, this has really been um, honestly a source of advocacy by a number of patient advocacy groups, but including the metastatic breast cancer community, uh, to decentralize clinical trials, to be able to have things like laboratory testing or imaging studies performed in the community, whatever place is, is most convenient to the patient's home or work, right. to be able to um, figure out, can we use things like telemedicine for visits just like this? You know, can I, right. as your doctor, look at you and say, seems to be doing pretty well and ask you about the side effects that you're having and then see you when I need to see you. But maybe that, that means you don't have to travel this long distance to the tr clinical trial site quite as frequently. Right. You know, is there an opportunity to use things like wearable devices to capture vital signs? I love that. This is coming and I'm very excited. And I think that once that is fully realized, we're going to have a lot more patients being able to participate in clinical trials. And I hope that our clinical trials will, will accrue and give us results more quickly. I love that. That's that's really good. I learned a lot. Uh, this this listening this this has been great. Well, uh, Doctor Powell, this was great information. I really appreciate your time and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was an honor. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org, and for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. 
Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com.